Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 93. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 12 through 15 and follow with a consideration of empathy and reveling in the suffering of others. Chapter 12 is a pivotal moment in the book of Isaiah, pivotal in the sense that Yeshayahu pivots from prophecies that focus on the people of Israel to discuss and foretell the fates of foreign nations. Chapter 12 is a mizmor, praising God. Mizmor is an interesting word. It's rendered as psalm in English, but its Hebrew root zemer denotes singing or vocalizing, while a psalm is a sacred hymn or song. So I guess that works. Where it gets a bit confusing is that we render the book of Tehillim as psalms, even though it literally means praises. In any event, Yeshayahu's chapter 12 mizmor comes without a specific context. Nothing happened to evoke the praise, and the praise itself is kind of general, deploying language and tropes that are familiar to the regular attendant of synagogue services or the reader of Psalms. The phrase, quote, praise the Lord, proclaim his name, make his deeds known among the peoples, stands out in particular as it repeats verbatim in Psalm 105. Although if you look at the opening verse of the chapter, it does not begin with a typical psalmy opening, but more like the opening of a prophecy, quote, In that day you shall say, etc., etc., and a later phrase, him the Lord, of he has done gloriously, recalls Exodus 15 and the miracle of the Exodus and the splitting of the Reed Sea. Chapter 13 launches a section of prophecies that deal with foreign powers, namely Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, the Philistines in the latter section of chapter 14, and the Moabites in chapter 15. In Yeshayahu's worldview, the Babylonians represent all that is evil. What is thy bidding, my master? According to many historians, Yeshayahu's Babylonian pronouncement is not actually about the Babylonians, but the Assyrians, who were the dominant power in the ancient Near East during Yeshayahu's lifetime. But other historians are convinced that this pronouncement refers to the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which was at its height in the beginning of the 5th century BCE, in which case Yeshayahu is not the author. In either case, this prophecy was penned before the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Achaemenids because the author ascribes the defeat of Babylon to Medes, not Persia. And the prophecy describes how God himself will muster legions to destroy Babylon, and Babylon's fall will mark the defeat of the wicked. This moment of victory of good is described by Yeshayahu as, quote, the day of the Lord. This day precedes the ultimate redemption. The thing is that it's clear from the tone and the content of this prophecy that Babylon is not the same Babylon that sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and sent the Jews into exile because there's no mention of it here. This is not why Babylon will fall. This is eschatology at its best, the end of days scenario, when good and evil clash and good will prevail. There can be only one. Only when we reach verse 17 do we come back down to earth, to real historical terms, to the map of the ancient Near East, and to real nations and real enemies, the Medes. And they are cold, heartless bastards. Quote, Behold, I stir up the Medes against them, who do not value silver or delight in gold. Their bows shall shatter the young. They shall show no pity to infants. They shall not spare the children, and Babylon, glory of kingdoms, proud splendor of the Chaldeans, shall become like Sodom and Gomorrah, overturned by God. Chapter 14 tells how Israel shall return to their land and prevail over their enemies. There's more about the collapse of Babylon and Assyria here as well, and the chapter concludes with a further smackdown of the Philistines. 
chapter 15 reveals a prophecy that will recur in another prophetic work, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 48. In each case, the prophet seems to be working from the same source material, but works it in their own unique style. Based on the place names, it seems that the source material was an ancient Moabite dirge, and Yeshayahu deploys it to describe the fate of Moab in his time, and there is some empathy in his description. This is where Yeshayahu breaks from the source material and later calls for the Moabites to come to Jerusalem and seek shelter until the storm of destruction passes. Yirmiyahu, on the other hand, a century later, relishes in their ruin, the schadenfreude popping from each line of prophecy. Yeshayahu will have more to say about Moab in the next chapter, as well as Damascus. But for now, thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. English is a lot of things, but somehow individual words in English lack heft. Perhaps that's my bias as a native English speaker. What I mean is that English words cannot really schlep a whole concept. Often there's need for two or three or perhaps even ten words to fully wrap around an idea and represent it. And perhaps I'm wrong and someone will tweet at me at dmendelsonaviv or leave a comment at thenextjew.com with some examples of English words that deliver the goods, and perhaps that's what jargon is for, for professionals to save time, but other languages have these words that just capture, they like represent whole concepts, and, and the internet is full of pieces where folks compile lists of real doozies from different languages. And before I share some of my favorites, there was actually an attempt at the Atlantic to propose concepts in dire need of an English word. My favorite of that list came from grammar girl Mignon Fogarty, which, though clever, struck me as a little bit petty. So she wants a word to express the moment where you find a social media post that you so want to share but can't because it's been ruined by an obvious spelling or punctuation error. Yeesh. Honorable mention went to Heather Woodford of Elkhorn, Nebraska, who desperately wants a grown-up equivalent for the words boyfriend and girlfriend. I'll throw up a link to the full Atlantic piece at thenextjew.com. But for me, I'd like a word for the word you know only from reading, but don't know how to pronounce it out loud. Or, or the odd tingle of familiarity, yet estrangement, that you experience when you see an exclusively Facebook friend in real life. Perhaps a handy portmanteau might do the trick, something like frenemy or gerrymander. But of course, the Germans, they win this one. They have the best words that capture whole concepts. And I'm going to share three of my favorites, although if you want to learn a new quirky German word each week, you can subscribe to Wert de Woche at iTunes. Anyway, here are my top three. Number three. Fjanve, which I guess is spelled fernwe, <laughs> literally means distance pain. It expresses a feeling of homesickness for a place you've never visited, which is the way I often feel about the Shire. Number two. Backweifengesicht, which literally means a face badly in need of a fist. If you look that up in the dictionary, you'll find a picture of Ted Cruz. Why am I? And number one. It's a twofer, which is not a German word for two for one. The words are friend shaman or stranger shame, which is the feeling of vicarious embarrassment when someone else does something well embarrassing. Go get the guitar. 
and its more caustic opposite that I alluded to when I was talking about the book of Jeremiah, schadenfreude, which is the joy you experience at the suffering of others, such as when Ted Cruz made this phone call to get out the vote for the Republican presidential nominee. Hi, this is Ted Cruz calling. Uh, I was calling to encourage you to come out and vote on election day. Uh, this election is critical for the direction of our country, and I urge you to come out and, and support freedom and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, you can vote by absentee ballot, and if you need help getting an application for an absentee ballot, the Republican Party of Texas can help you with that. Or you can vote in person. I just wanted to encourage you to come out and vote. Thank you, and God bless you. After everything he said he was going to do to the nominee, all that bluster and bravado and machismo, and you stopped picking on my wife, and my dad didn't kill Kennedy, and I'll never endorse you, and then, let's hear it one more time. No, I'm not going to make you listen to it. There's a Hebrew phrase for this, Simcha Laed, which comes from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5, quote, He who rejoices over another's misfortune will not go unpunished. Uh-oh. But come on, this is a well-known and well-documented state of mind going all the way back to Aristotle, who in the Nicomachean Ethics situates schadenfreude, which he calls epikairikakia, that, that's a mouthful, in opposition to ptonos, which is a painful response to someone else's good fortune. So, epikairikakia, I practiced that like ten times, is taking pleasure in someone else's bad fortune. Incidentally, in the middle is nemesis, which is a painful response to someone else's undeserved good fortune. German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer famously quipped, quote, to feel envy is human, to savor schadenfreude is diabolic. But I think there are shades of schadenfreude, as in, what if the person really deserves their bad fortune, like Ted Cruz? Why am I persecuted here? Or, what if the bad fortune that person gets is similar to mine? Can I derive some joy from sharing that bad fortune together? Isn't that catharsis? In this episode, we get a little bit of both schadenfreude and fremdschamen. So I want to explore how the Tanakh sorts out the nuances of this colorful but very human sentiment, especially in the prophets, because surprisingly, the Torah is silent on this matter. So, there is an explicit allusion to schadenfreude in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17 and 18. Quote, If your enemy falls, do not exult. If he trips, let not your heart rejoice, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and avert his wrath from him. Yechezkel, the third latter prophet, strengthens this point on three separate occasions. Chapter 18, verse 23. Quote, Is it my desire that the wicked person shall die, says the Lord God? It is rather that he shall turn back from his ways and live. Same chapter, verse 32, quote, For it is not my desire that anyone shall die, declares the Lord God. Repent, therefore, and live. Finally, chapter 33, verse 11, quote, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, it is not my desire that the wicked shall die, but that the wicked shall turn from his evil ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, that you may not die, O house of Israel. This is the schadenfreude that is probably the hardest to resist, where the person who trips and falls completely deserves it, and all you want to do is... <laughs> so the sentiment is clear. We are not to revel in the shame or suffering of another, even if it's an evil person who sorely deserves it. And yet, there are some verses where we do hear, perhaps not a ringing endorsement of schadenfreude, but at least an acknowledgement of this very human tendency. Proverbs again, this time chapter 11, verse 10, quote, 
When the righteous prosper, the city exults. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. One wonders in which context one would shout with joy at the perishing of the wicked. How wicked does that person have to be in order for his demise to be worthy of shouts of joy? Oh, behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby! Yeah. Psalm 52 is quite unequivocal about this as well. If you recall that Doeg the Edomite ratted out a fleeing David to Shaul, to this the psalmist states, quote, You love all destructive words, the tongue of deceit. God surely will smash you forever, sweep you up and tear you from the tent, root you out from the land of the living, Selah, and the righteous shall see and be awed and laugh over him. Later in Psalm 68, verses 2 through 4, quote, Let God arise, let his enemies scatter, let his foes flee before him. As smoke disperses, may they disperse. May the wicked perish before God, and may the righteous rejoice and exult before God and be gladdened in joy. So where does Yeshayahu fit into this? As I said earlier, chapter 13 presents Babylonia as the ultimate evil. And being the ultimate evil, they will vex God's people, but only because God's people have sinned. But in the biblical worldview, this means that they are going to get their comeuppance. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. And that day will be marked by the armies of Medes who will rain down destruction on Babylon. Roving bands of wandering Arabs will not even pitch their tents there because of the desolation. But a San Diego Zoo's worth of animals will take up residence in the ruins, howling creatures, ostriches, goat demons, hyenas, jackals. Ishayahu seems to relish in the telling, as if he's enjoying the suffering of the Babylonians, which sounds an awful lot like schadenfreude, the bad kind. The kind you're not supposed to indulge in, really, even though the suffering person deserves every drop of it. But before we wag our finger at Yeshayahu, something we rarely get to do at prophets, who usually do all the finger-wagging at us, he moves on to the Moabites and describes their tribulations with similar zest and detail, but he adds one important element. Verse 5, quote, My heart cries out over Moab. We're not experiencing joy at Moab's shame, we feel the shame too, and their dispossession, their sadness, it's truly friend shaman. But I wonder, isn't friend shaman just empathy or maybe sympathy? Both sympathy and empathy share the root pathos, which means suffering or feeling. Sympathy generally refers to commiseration, pity, or feelings of sorrow, whereas empathy involves you putting yourself in the other's situation so you experience their emotions and suffering too. So Frem Shaman is more about empathy. It's more about me experiencing the embarrassment you're experiencing too. In fact, a team of German researchers published a 2011 article entitled Your Flaws Are My Pain, linking empathy to vicarious embarrassment, where they discovered, quote, The present findings establish the empathic process as a fundamental prerequisite for vicarious embarrassment experiences, thus connecting affect and cognition to interpersonal processes. In other words, friend shaman and empathy are linked. I'll throw up a link to the article if you're really interested in reading it. 
I read the intro and the discussion at the end, like all well-trained academes. So Yeshayahu indulges in a little bit of schadenfreude, a little bit of the old Simcha La'id, but hey, the Babylonians very much deserve it. And even though the Medes are dishing out the devastation, it comes ultimately from God, from where all good and all big bad things come. So, yeah. However, and more importantly, Yeshayahu also experiences deep friend shaman, and he empathizes with Moab. He feels their pain. Perhaps it's because uh, he's human and he can't revel in another's humiliation, especially when it comes to them so undeservedly. Then again, he never had YouTube. In either case, Yeshayahu will have a lot more to say about Moab and other nations in the coming chapters, so stay tuned to see if his tune changes. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 94, when we continue the book of Isaiah with chapters 16 through 19.